0: Welcome to Fiscal Fitness with your hosts, John Grace and Daniel Medina. They have all the questions about investing, planning, retirement, and the future. You could say it's all they live for. While it can seem daunting getting everything sorted out and the important questions answered, they'll do their best to make it that much easier. Now, here's John Grace and Daniel Medina.
1: Thank you so much for joining us, ladies and gentlemen. So delighted to have you with us. Uh, this is Fiscal Fitness with John Grace and Daniel Medina. And we'll have some discussions uh, about a number of topics. Uh, we will not have a debate debacle as we all witnessed last night. So we'll miss that. And I'm, I'm okay with that. Uh, but we're going to address a couple of things. Uh, we'll look at the market real quick because I think that's helpful. We'll also look at some of the things that are kind of, uh, well, things that we are paying attention to and really focus on some opportunity uh, because uh, we, we've been at, at the uh, – this isn't our first time at the rodeo. We've been around since uh, 1979, helping one client at a time since 1979 at Investor's Advantage. And we have, I have the pleasure of being associated with a team with the Elite Financial network. And in fact, we have the founder and president, uh, Dan Cairo. So we have two Dan's, if you will Daniel Medina and Daniel Cairo. He goes by Dan, who has joined us today to help us uh, really get a sense for how um, opportunities may be missed, but we're going to highlight what the opportunities are that folks can take advantage of, and and I'm calling it a a world of opportunity that most of us don't see. Uh, So we'll get into that. And and before that, we'll be looking at, as I say, real estate and interest rates, because so much uh, money and time and interest is around real estate. And many would just conclude that there's no there's no way around it that real estate has trumped, sorry, uh, investments and everything else, particularly stocks. So we'll look at that because uh, we see um, kind of an interesting uh, perspective that's different than what I think most people think. So we promise to keep you up to date with what's going on in the market. And this has been a very good day overall in terms of the market. And, and often what times what happens is people kind of pay attention to the nanosecond. And so if you see it's a, a good day, like uh, right now the S&P looks like it's up nearly 1% for the day, which is any day there's anywhere to make 1% in a day, that's a good day. And and then we conclude that that's just what's happening. So it's kind of like you know watching the people you know, and then extrapolating that. Every Everybody's doing what the people you know are doing. And in fact, those folks that you're paying the most attention to may very well be outliers as opposed to looking at the average. We think it makes sense to look at the outliers, but that's second. We think it makes more sense to look at the average first because there are more people average than exceptional. So uh, focus on the average first and then look at the exceptional people, but do not draw conclusions based on the exceptional people you know because they're exceptional. <laughs> they're the outliers. They're part of the minority, if you will. Uh, so year to date, and then when I say year to date, we're talking about January 1, 2020 through today as of 3.05 Eastern time right now. It looks like the, the um, S&P 500, which is the index most people watch, is up 4.3%. That's for the year so far. So that's not exactly hitting the ball, part, the ball out of the park. On the other hand, when we look at the Nasdaq, we see for the same time period, it's up nearly 25%. Now that's hitting the ball out of the park. That's 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 a that's a great game. That, that that one nobody would be disappointed with. On the other hand, look at this as an extreme. And we're talking about three indexes, okay, that we all spend a lot of time on. The Dow, again, from January 1 through now 3:06 Eastern Time today is about off 2.68%. That's not about, that's exact as of right now. So that means that the, the Dow, that's the Dow 30, it started at the Dow 10 stocks. Now it's 30 stocks that we're paying attention to is in negative territory. So Here you have, on the one hand, stocks in negative territory. Think of those as the, you know, the old style or old company stocks, the Dow represented by the Dow, as opposed to the new companies, which is the NASDAQ, all things uh, technology-based, right? Uh, that's up about about 24% and if I'm not mistaken, that twenty four percent again is a, a very good number but it's down about 10 points from the high just a couple of weeks ago so uh, this will be interesting to to keep our eye on and we'll we'll talk about that as we have time before the uh, end of the show to kind of look at how the the, the, the market closed because we'll be we'll be ending the show just about the time the, the market is closing so Daniel and I came across some things that you know where people are talking about real estate and interest rates and thought it might be of value because I think uh, uh, Daniel's wife, and actually she's in the business of mortgages and real estate, who asked a question about what relationship is there between real estate and interest rates. So Daniel, take it from there, please, and and, and talk to us about what you and Millie were discussing and what you were able to uh, explain to her, someone who's in the business that I suspect most people don't know.
2: Thank you, John. It was, it was an interesting conversation because everybody, everybody understands that there's a relationship between interest rates and, and real estate prices, but it came to light that it's not, a, it's not a necessarily intuitive how it works. So the way I'm going to submit to you to think about it is to think more about affordability. That's what really drives the question. And that's influenced by home prices and interest rates nowadays seems like everyone is buying houses on the most leverage they could possibly use, 80%, 90%, whatever is available to them. So what's what's the most important thing is what's my monthly payment? They don't seem to even care what the price of the house is as long as the, the house is affordable. So the question is how does interest rates and home prices work? Well, the cheaper the house, uh, the, the more it makes it affordable and more it makes it attractive. And because we're buying on so much leverage nowadays, the interest rate plays a big part of that. And interest rates have been coming down for the last 40 years. Home prices have been going up and it seems that affordability has been, is keeping real estate prices where they are today. Now let me ask you a question, John, where was interest rates when you bought your first house?
1: Oh, my goodness, Daniel. I mean, that was before you were born. But uh, back in the early 80s, interest rates were 16%. I mean, some people remember getting 16% on their money market funds, okay? But we did not remember that uh, your highest federal tax bracket was 70 and inflation was 14. So you were actually underwater about 4.5% when those rates were the all-time high. But let's notice that this is when boomers, for the most part, had were getting good jobs and they were able to borrow money from their parents, and they were literally lining up to buy homes at 16%, all right? we've alright never seen those kinds of uh, mortgage rates, and, and by the way, you could not have told boomers that they would see 3% money, they would have told you you're out of your mind, get out of my house, you're an absolute idiot, and here we are. But let's also notice that uh, the, the, the thing that drives the market relative to real estate the most, I would, I would submit based on the research that we pay for through debt research, is based on age. So notice at the time that boomers were lining up literally to buy a house across the country, again, rates were 14, 15, 16%, but 31 is the age at which most Americans buy their first homes, 31 that's when and in the early 80s guess what here comes 76 million people lining up to buy their first homes (laughs) so you and then we tend to buy our we'll we'll come back to this but we tend to buy our biggest homes in america on average around 41 this again comes from the census bureau and debt research and then we might get to what happens around 78 in terms of those homes but yeah uh, nobody imagined that you'd see three percent money below three percent money and let's just notice while there's a lot of demand when you, you you're not seeing new new homes of you know 100 200 new homes coming up in a in a block that's being for sale and and, and literally people were were standing in line then not seeing that happen so much right now
2: Wait, so what's your I- rate right?
1: i mean you you bought recently
2: we bought four years ago and it's three. it was three and a half percent and it was it was great. And I at the time, I didn't care so much what the what the interest rate was, but I did care what that payment was. And now we're looking at refinancing uh, just just under three percent. So it's amazing how 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 it's changed over the year, over the last four years. And it just keeps keeps, keeps seem to coming down.
1: And Do if you think we'll get negative, will we go negative?
2: Oh, I don't even want to think about that. I don't know what that would look like for this country. I think only one country actually or one lender around the world went negative. And I'm not even sure what happened to that one. Uh, I don't I am not sure where we're going on interest rates, but I wouldn't be surprised if if the administration wants to take us that way.
1: But you did look at affordability and that this is really interesting.
2: Yeah, the California Association of Realtors has an affordability index that I found very interesting. It peaked in second quarter of 2012 um, for the country at 70%. And today it's at 57% affordability. In California, it peaked the same time at 55% affordability. And now we're down to 33%.
1: But it's 33% of what exactly?
2: Of eligible homebuyers.
1: Aha. Uh-huh. Okay.
2: Or household, I believe, actually.
1: All right. So certainly, a lot more were able to buy as compared to today. It's a lot less.
2: Yeah. If you look at if you look if you just look at what happened with real estate and and interest rates, because that's where affordability really comes from. Real estate continues to go up, and interest rates continue to go down. Now, I'm I'm not certain of this at this point, but at some point, you think real estate or interest rates have to go back up, right?
1: Well, eventually, yes. No no question about it. And I'm not sure who's prepared for that. But it looks like we're going to pass for the next two or three years. So, so it appears, yeah.
2: <laughs> but at some point, really, if interest rates do go up, what's that going to do to affordability?
1: Well, if it's going not, to reverse itself. There's no question about not, it.
2: If we're not making much more money today than we were in 2012, what does that tell us? Something's well, and then the
1: other... Yeah, you're right. And then the other side of the equation or part of the equation is uh, in terms of affordability. In the old days, it was what uh, you could qualify with 30 percent of your income. These days, you have to have uh, income, you know, to qualify for the loan. That's five, six, 10 percent uh, greater. It, you know, it, it's a you have to have a lot more income to qualify assuming that you, you that you can't uh, these days as opposed to the old days. It was, it was a lot easier to buy a house. And and I think that's what this is addressing. It's, it's become a whole lot harder uh, as we speak. And yet people are anxious and excited right now to move uh, looks like from the cities uh, to the suburbs. We'll see how long that lasts, but let's, we, we, we kind of, try to tease you a little bit. Here's what's around the corner. And that is, uh, as I say, 31 is the age at which most of us bought our first homes. By the way, with the millennials, it looks like it's advanced to 37 years old before people buy their first house. So they're waiting and they're not interested in the McMansion that the boomers love. And 41 is the age at which most Americans bought their biggest house. That was between 1980 and 2000, when 40% of the homes purchased in the country were on lot sizes of one half acre to 10 acres in size. Can anybody relate to that? I certainly can. I had to have a 5,000 square foot, six car garage McMansion. Thought I was doing something different. I was doing what exactly every baby boomer was doing at the same time, so much for being unique. So if we just turn around and look ahead, put the the, the headlights and the high beams on the road just around the corner, we can see that uh, 78, 79 is the age at which most Americans sell their homes And now we have 76 million people who I would submit have helped dramatically put these prices of homes at nosebleed levels, took 20 years to buy the biggest house. It's going to take 20 years for people to come out of that house, whether it's under their own power or they're being carried out of that house. But let's just recognize, and this comes from the CIA, we were looking at it last week, average age of death in America is 80 years old. So there is going to be a point at which this situation reverses itself. But uh, in the meantime, let's talk about something we also looked at, uh, Daniel, and that's uh, this notion that certainly real estate has done a lot better than stocks. That, that's the thought. But I would submit to you that only happens when you have the combination of um, appreciation and debt. So Daniel, help us with the math here. Let me make sure I get it right. If you put a million dollars in stocks and it goes up 10%, you made $100,000 on your million, right? So you have $1.1 million. If on the other hand, you put a million dollars on a piece of real estate, and let's suppose to Daniel's point, you only come in with 10% down, that's $100,000, and your real estate goes from your purchasing price of $1 million to your uh, current price of $1.1 million, that's $100,000 on your investment of $100,000, that's 100% return oh my goodness, (laughs) your happy days are here again. This is a magnificent thing. But let's recognize that was a result of both the debt and the appreciation. So debt is certainly a good friend to have when there is appreciation. But as I think many of us learned in 2008, it becomes your foe when there is depreciation. So if we take out the debt, uh, component and 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 we don't see you know that kind of uh inflation the, the, when we look at uh, the economists uh, bloomberg did a, a study uh, a chart that we were looking at that goes and and they made it very easy they said suppose you had hundred dollars in stocks versus a hundred dollars in home prices in the country so this is an average and i know every community is different but they started in 1975 ran this forward through 2015. That's what, a 40-year period, if I'm not mistaken. And we find that when it comes to average U.S. home prices, by 2015, $100 was worth uh, uh, about, let's say, $620, $620. However, when we look at the stock market, we see that $100, yes, it was volatile. It went up, it went down, but Interestingly enough, it for the most part stayed ab- well above the average for U.S. home prices, and we can see by 2015 that uh, gain was approximately $2,500 on your $100. So, w- what do you say to that, Daniel?
2: Well, I'm I'm going to say the biggest point we can make is your if you're don't count on your primary residence as so much as an investment, it's a use asset. You bought it because you were going to live there, you needed some place for your family. If you're going to treat it like, like an investment or you want to look at it like investment, you have to treat it like an investment. So that's the biggest point I think we want to make there. Uh, if you're going to be in the real estate business, then do that, be in that business. But too many people use their primary residence as their saving grace for retirement. And it, we think it's very dangerous because they put all their money into their, into their house and then they have to sell it at some point to actually use it. And that becomes very dangerous. Do all the other things too. Save money in your retirement accounts, save money outside of your retirement accounts, um, have investments elsewhere. Diversification is very important.
1: Yeah, and one of the things we see with those who are landlords, they get such an emotional attachment to the house, and they they just love the tenants, and they're not treating it as a business. So we find when we help them look at their real estate holdings that they're below market when it comes to their rents. So effectively, they're subsidizing the renters. My parents did this; they they loved all the people who were who were staying in their in their rentals, and 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 they kept the prices low. And then along comes. Um, you know, Prop 13, where you, you can't raise rents like in LA, like you used to be able to and you can in other cities. So I'm just saying, it's a business. My first piece of property, excuse me, happened to be a rental. And what I said, learning from my parents, is with each renter, sign here, your rental rate will increase at the rate of inflation as uh, uh, announced by the Los Angeles Times. So it's on your anniversary. Hope you're still here. And your rent's going to increase on your anniversary at whatever the rate of inflation is at that particular time. We'll we'll, we'll, we'll make sure we take a look at that. But it, it, it took the... Uh, The pain out of telling people your rent has to go up by putting certainty into the equation that your rent's going to go up at the rate of inflation. So I'm not going to feel bad about that. Uh, I'm over it already. And you know what's coming. So there's no surprise. So we're going to uh, uh, take a break. And uh, what do you want us to know before we get to the break and get to the other side with Dan Cairo? Daniel? Daniel?
2: Well, before we get to the break, I uh, want, want you guys to know where you can find us. You can find us on Facebook at Investors Advantage or on Twitter at Money on Course. You can also send us an email at contact at ybpoor.com.
1: Terrific. So we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back looking at the world of opportunity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
0: At Investors Advantage Corporation, our trademark statement, the proof is in the planning, represents the value we see in hard work and perseverance, coupled with a sound plan for the future. With the challenges facing our country's frontline workers, we see a lot being asked and not a lot given in return. four nine five two zero seven seven that's ybpoor dot or 805-495-2077 we are located in thousand oaks california thank you for your service and we look forward to lending a hand through your financial journey have you become a member yet sign up now to become a member of voice america it's always free and easy Now, back to Fiscal Fitness.
1: Welcome back, folks. John Grayson, Daniel Medina here on Fiscal Fitness. So glad you could join us. And we're delighted to answer your questions. We want to turn now to the president and founder of uh, the Elite Financial Network, Dan Cairo is on the show with us uh, this afternoon, uh, and I believe that. Uh, well, I know that we are part of Dan's team at Elite Financial Network, and as a result of that, uh, Dan will tell us more about how his team is made up. But uh, that what it what it really means is we're all part of a team that manages about 800 million dollars with assets under management, and those are those are significant dollars. I mean, it's not a billion yet, but you know, they, they were, it's not uh, 200 thousand dollars either so i, I asked dan uh, cairo to join us because i want him to share with us how he got in the business and the real reason for this and then daniel and i will quickly tell you how we got in the business but what we're saying is that as far as an industry is concerned i mean we, we the, the industry has missed a lot of, of people relative to minorities and women in particular uh, that we're just not showing up. So we'll be talking about that as we discuss it with with Dan Cairo, but what we what I want him to highlight for us, it, it, if you have young people in particular who may have an interest in the world of finance, what we want to highlight is where they can make that kind of entrance for themselves. And and I want you to know, I mean, when I was in junior high school, I remember uh, the teachers were encouraging all the guys to become engineers. And then we saw engineering have some, some severe peaks and valleys. When it comes to the financial services industry, there's a place for those who want to be in it regardless of race creed or color or gender okay um and but if we don't know there's a door those of us in our families who might have an interest along these lines then we don't know that we can get through that door and so it appears to be a door that is invisible to too many of us. And that's part of what we are using this as an opportunity to discuss, that this is something that uh, those who are interested, there is a place for you. You don't have to be a whiz in math, uh, English skills, you know, speaking skills do help. But at the end of the day, there are people who are gonna be uh, selfers, you know, they're gonna be do-it-yourselfers, they're gonna invest on their own. There are a lot more people right now who want to have some guidance from the standpoint of how, how am I going to stop work at 65 and live to 100 and financially it, it's a non-event and what happens if uh, a breadwinner dies too soon it's kind of like you know you're both holding up a, a six-foot table with all this stuff and all these people on it and heaven forbid one of those people at either end of the table goes to heaven how is the rest of the family who's left here going to maintain life as we knew it when both breadwinners regardless of being married we're bringing in this money and now that money is gone. How's the rest of the family going to continue on as though the, you know, the person's gone, but the lifestyle has not suffered. And then also of course, looking at uh, education planning so that their kids can get, a college education, if that's their choice. But once they graduate, we're all crying at the graduation because they graduated, and because no one has any debt that they're 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 labored with for the for the rest of their lives. So, Dan Cairo, please give us an outline because I know um, you may look like the majority of people in the securities business. It's Caucasian, 80% male, 13 to 20% uh, white female for the most part. But I think your background
3: is more similar to uh, well, in fact, it, was it East LA that you grew up in? That's right, John. And I wanna first uh, say thank you for you and uh, Daniel for asking me to come, come on board and talk a little bit. It's a, it's a pleasure and a privilege to do so. And, you know, it's hard to believe that uh, I've been in this business going on 34 years now. And thinking back, as you stated, where, uh, where I grew up in East Los Angeles, uh, affectionately called as the, the barrio or the hood. Uh, my, uh, my, uh, my mother came over from Italy. My dad's parents came over from Italy. So you know, they uh, installed a really solid work ethic back in the day. And one thing that I've always kind of visualized as a child uh, is when I was in East LA and it was covered with graffitis And a lot of my friends were in gangs, though I didn't think anything of it. When I would go into the more, let's just say, affluent areas as a child, I would look at these places and go, wow, mom, these places look so bright. Well, it's because they were clean. (laughs) But as a child, you you know, you don't get that, right? And then as we got older, my dad, strictly a laborer, uh, never graduated high school. Uh, My mom never went to college. And they worked. Uh, hand and foot to put me through and my sister through uh, school. We went to parochial school, then we went to college. And how I got into this business is a, a great story. I played sports and I had a, a good friend of mine, a couple years older, little uh, tiny little Italian guy. And uh, we used to play basketball at the YMCA and uh, he disappeared for a while. Next time I saw him, looked like he hadn't sleep for two months. And his name was Frank. I go, Frank, you look like heck, what's going on? And he goes, well, I'm studying to be a stockbroker. I said, well, what the heck's a stockbroker? And he goes, well, you know, it has to do with selling stocks and bonds to rich people. I go, okay, what does that mean? He tried to tell me, didn't really cross my bridge yet. So he'll you know, start playing basketball. Lo and behold, six, seven, eight months later, he comes pulling up to the YMCA in his new Alfa Romeo, looking sharp. And I go, wow, what's going on? He goes, no, oh, it's working out. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to look into this thing. So uh, I was going to Cal State, L.A., working my way through college, and I went to the Career Center, and back in the day pre-Google, uh, there was a tack board with uh, business opportunities. So I would, I just pulled out the low index card, and I saw Merrill Lynch, stockbroker assistant, had no idea what that meant, but I thought, you know, I'm going to put on a suit and go check it out. And, uh, went in there the guy hired me to basically be a cold caller. And from there, I realized there's really two parts of our business. There's the transactional part and there's a relationship part. And much like you, John and Daniel, I'm a relationship guy. You know, I, I I like coaching, uh, through my, my passports. And I wanted to get into a business where I could really make an influence. And not only in my life, but more importantly, in others. And uh, I only went in two interviews in my life. Uh, one was at uh, the old Rockwell, McDonnell Douglas. Uh, the other was in a little boutique uh, financial planning firm. I took that. And 34 y- uh, years later, I'm still doing it. So <laughs> knock on wood, it's worked out.
1: Yes, sir. And how many people are part of the Elite Financial Network? And describe gender and ethnicity, please.
3: You know, that's a great question. And uh, if I may start off with uh, having parents that uh, migrated, ethnicity has always been a big part of my life. Uh, When my mom came over, she settled uh, settled, uh, with her family in Willowbrook, which is basically South central L.A., And she learned Spanish before she learned English. Hmm. So I had that culture. And then being in Willowbrook, my cousins all went to Verbum Day High School, which is a predominantly black high school. And they ended up being uh, coaches at that same high school. So I was surrounded growing up more of people of color than I was white people, quote unquote. So for myself, I you know, being blessed as I was, you don't understand how poor you are until you, you're not poor anymore. Right. But I was fortunate <laughs> to just have this kaleidoscope of people around me. And I'm proud to say, I think because of that upbringing, uh, we have right now about 37 financial advisors in my uh, OSJ, we call it, and uh, or my group, of which I look at all of our Uh, financial advisors, we're all team members. We all support each other and try to build better mousetraps for our clients, of which 27% of our total happen to be women. If we add staffing, it takes over, it's closer to 45%. If we look at uh, people of color, uh, 38%, which is off the charts higher than most. Indeed. Uh, Blacks represent 11% of my, my, my team, uh, of which industry norms in the securities industry runs around 4.4, depending right. on the periodical you look at. Latin represents 16%. And uh, nationwide, that represents typically 2.9%. And Asian, 14%, where nationwide is 6.4. So we're above the, we're above the fray uh and i'm I'm very proud of that
1: you should be you should be and and we're going to move on but i want to i want to ask daniel how did you get in the business
2: i kind of fell into it so first job out of uh, college was a toy project manager for a toy company, then went to do some uh, marketing for a real estate firm um, that happened to be in the same building as your office, John. And uh, that that didn't work out after about a year. And I was fortunate to find a job, uh, the investor's advantage, started on the admin side. And then I realized um, uh, I really like the math part of it. And growing up, I never really knew what this industry was. I knew there was a financial services industry and there was a stock market, but I never had any idea. How it worked or what really what it meant so that's that job this job where it started that was my first introduction really to the financial services industry and i went to college and i got a good education and, and it was it never came up
1: Hmm. okay so my story is i mean most people don't know that i'm from the south and of course i'm talking about south la uh but i had a, a <laughs> the opportunity to be a best man in a jewish wedding who lived uh, his parents lived in uh, the marina they bought a brand new townhouse in the marine in marina del Rey. so that's really you know very different from where i grew up but as we were planning the wedding and whatnot the father apparently uh asked his son hey you know that guy that one he looks kind of interesting have him talk to me because he might want to be doing what i'm doing and he this was uh, ken Morse. god blessed his soul And uh, he was uh, on the independent side in the financial planning arena. And at that time, the people on the independent side, for them, it was very important not to be associated with uh, companies like Merrill Lynch. Merrill had, of course, all the power and all the money, and they were very well named. But the folks on the independent side felt very proud of the fact that they are unbought and unbossed, as Shirley Chisholm, that was the title of of her book. Uh, And what that meant was they're not, you know, They're not married to the insurance companies. They're not married to any of the securities companies. They like doing financial plans. And by the way, notice that our trademark is the proof excuse me, is in the planning, which for us is so important. We want to look at all the facets, not just what the company tells us we should be doing. So he became my mentor, and I said, well, you know, geez, how much blood do you want? He says, you just have to show up my house uh, once a week. We'll put a schedule together, and I'll uh, guide you in terms of getting past uh, your first securities test. You've already passed the insurance test. That's a good start, and uh, we'll, we'll get you going, and, and I'll, I'll help you. Now, what, what, what's fascinating, as I say, best man at a Jewish wedding, so last, Last year, uh, Dan Cairo, when we were in Seattle uh, for a conference in June, I was talking to the groom's son because the son of my friend the groom wanted to be in the securities business in boston <laughs> so and i now we're in seattle and i'm talking to him about look let me tell you some stories about your grandfather because i know you two never met and then uh, let me see if i can't be helpful to you because your grandfather without him i wouldn't be here so you own me you will let me do whatever i can to help you get in the business because i i, I think uh, turnabout's fair play so part of what we're really trying to say here folks is there is a way to get in this business. And I think uh, there's some things that are changing. For example, we're recognizing, this was a city report just last week, that racism has cost the U.S. economy $16 trillion over the last 20 years. So if it is the case, as I believe it is, that all boats rise on a rising sea, and we see distinctions between those who are enjoying their beautiful yachts and those who are left with drift would, it certainly makes sense for us to figure out how more of us could be on the yachts if that's where we want to be. But if we can't see where those opportunities are, then it becomes nearly impossible. So that total, by the way, comes from the combined cost of disparities in wages, education, investment in Black-owned businesses, and the housing market. So people are beginning to see that these kinds of situations are persisting for whatever the reasons there might be, but I'm looking to see how that might be changed and and also it turns out uh just what a week and a half ago or so, city announced out of the blue that a female and in fact I think she was running their um their South America money, if you will, uh, one of their divisions, so that wasn't a very high position within their uh you know the hierarchy at, at Citibank, but she will be uh, the uh, new CEO starting in 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 February, which is it, that's mind-blowing in terms of blowing through this uh, this glass ceiling. Th- th- that's the first bank that's moved in this direction. I'm sure it won't be the last one. I think this is just the beginning. So... Um, Tell us, Dan Cairo, uh, outline the steps, if you would, uh, in terms of if an interested party that wanted to get in the business, and and I want to make sure the audience knows, it it doesn't matter if you want to be like Daniel does our math. He makes sure that I'm ready to make the presentation. I work on the presentation and and the visuals. And so it's a good combination. You you need to have both. And I don't, you'd be hard pressed to try to do both well, particularly in any kind of volume. So there are some people who want to be kind of the front office person dealing directly with the clients, uh, building the relationship. Then there are other people who more prefer to be behind the scenes, kind of like the folks who run the lab tests so the doctors can do the administration of whatever the surgeries might be. But you have to have that combination. So Daniel, Dan Cairo, tell us how, do you have opportunities at Elite Financial Network and how might people recognize what are the steps they need to, to do to look at, kicking the tires relative to being in the securities business?
3: Well, that's a great question, John. And I think the the, the first step is, are you interested in your own personal finances? Because if you're gonna deal regardless if you're on the front lines or in the back lines, you really have to have an interest in money and in planning mm-hmm. and in goal setting and things of that nature. So if that is step one of, potentially enjoying this business, that would be it. Do you enjoy your personal finances? And it could be something as basic as if you already have a career. Are you, did you open up a 401k if it was afforded to you? Are you putting a little bit money aside? Things of that nature. If you're in college, well, now you can do what I did uh, a hundred years ago is you will find that almost every financial advisor that I've had the privilege of knowing really cares about people who are interested in coming into our business, regardless of color, race, creed, gender, and anything else that may cross the bridge here. So what I would do is just simply knock on a door and ask for some assistance or from some knowledge. The next thing is, besides talking to professionals, is do you have certain skills that will sway you to go front line or back line? Meaning, are you more of a talker? Or are you more of a listener? Do you want to actually improve lives? Because this is not a position that you want to be in it for yourself because you will not be successful. If, if you really want to empower and impact people's lives, financially speaking, I can't tell you, and John, you could relate to this, I'm sure. We do a lot of pro bono listening, right? It could be helping somebody who lost a loved one. It could be helping somebody going through a divorce. There's so many aspects to our business besides dollars and cents. So I always say, if you like coaching, if you like people, if you take interest in wanting to hear stories, this is a fantastic business for you fantastic and then beyond that is look for internships you know right now back in the old days you know i I found a little boutique john uh you know found his relationship uh there used to be a lot of training programs not as much anymore so what we do know in our industry we have a decreasing advisor force they're aging and there's and the industry has done a very poor job of replenishing the bench. So this, for new people wanting to come in, can pose tremendous opportunities to be taken under an advisor's wing and be groomed to maybe even take over and purchase a practice. Uh, so there, there's this, the scope is fairly vast when it comes to that. John, if there's anything you'd like to add, uh, I think pretty much that sums it up at this point
1: yes i think we have a, a break and i think uh we're going to pick this up on the other side of the break so daniel give us our instructions again please you can contact us by
2: sending us an email at contact at yb Poor. we're on, on facebook at uh, invest under investors advantage and you can contact us on twitter at money on course
1: thank you see you on the other side of the break
2: Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey,
3: Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. At Investors
0: Advantage Corporation, our trademark statement, the proof is in the planning, represents the value we see in hard work and perseverance, coupled with a sound plan for the future. With the challenges facing our country's frontline workers, we see a lot being asked and not a lot given in return. 2077. That's ybpoor.com or 805-495-2077. We are located in Thousand Oaks, California. Thank you for your service and we look forward to lending a hand through your financial journey.
1: the bottom line in business talk
3: when it comes to business you'll find the experts here
1: voice america business network
0: you are listening to fiscal fitness To reach the show today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at ybpoor.com. Now back to Fiscal Fitness.
1: Welcome back, folks. John Grace and Daniel Medina here with Fiscal Fitness. And we're delighted that uh, founder and president Dan Cairo of the Elite Financial Network is uh, with us. And one of the things that uh, we wanted you to know is in terms of uh, assets under management, uh, between the parent organizations and the, these are more on, again on the independent side which is the way we like to do business we prefer to do business frankly for for a host of reasons but it's a total of over 400 billion dollars so uh the, the you know this isn't uh, the Merrills of the world or the smith barneys of the world they're they're more of investment bankers and and we're more financial planners but all same securities licenses different orientation and often different thought processes and different ways of putting money to work. So let let me give you some numbers here because I think it helps us help you see that we see you we see it as it is. You know, oftentimes Hollywood has been taught to, has been said to be tough on, on women, but the world of finance is certainly another high-profile, big-money industry where women and people of color have just been underrepresented historically. And so in the various echelons of financial management and investment services, women and minorities, for the most part, have been left out. Let me Let me paint that picture a little bit more clearly. This is a study from Harvard Business School showing that the senior roles in venture capital and private equity, women held just nine and six percent of the positions respectively so you can see some of dan's numbers are quite a bit above average and that's what we like that when we look at u.s banks we find that and there are only six headed by females six out of 100 banks in the US. And uh, earlier this year, we could find uh, four black uh, CEOs in the Fortune 500. That was in July. Lately, I believe we lost one, so we're down to three. And in history, we've only had two black women lead an S&P 500 company. This is all from from Bloomberg. So there has been an increase recently in the number of uh, Latinos and African-Americans in the financial planning community, but the ratios are still very low. And, and Andy Sieg, president at Merrill, said there's, quote, clearly more to do. Uh, the doors could be opening by virtue of uh, the, the woman I was trying to reference was Jane Frazier, who will be their new CEO, making her the first woman to lead a major Wall Street bank in, in history. So um, we've, we've got some work to do here. And, uh, Daniel, you had a, 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 you're had you the math wizard of, of the three of us. <laughs> I, I know you wanted to ask a, a question of, of Dan Cairo.
2: Yeah, Dan, it's, it's like John said, math, math is certainly my thing, and that's where I gravitate to. But is that, Dan, is that really what's necessary to be in this business? Do you have to well, know math well?
3: You know, it, it, not really. I mean, you want to, if you like puzzles, that's a, that's a good asset to have. Not really, well, let me take a step back. If you're going to do what you do, Daniel, and I know what you do, and you do incredibly well, well then obviously you have to have a, a high level of acumen when it comes to math, math, mathematical skills. But to be a financial advisor, it's more problem solving. So it's taking some analytical skills, not the one plus one equals two per se, but having the ability to listen to what the goals and objectives of a client is. And in many, in many cases, we work numbers in reverse if somebody wants to have a standard of living of X amount of income 20 years from now, then you add inflation to the mix. You know, we have to index it all the way upwards. And then we work backwards to find out how much money do we need to invest not only today, but on an ongoing basis to hit those targets with certain probabilities. The nice thing, uh, unlike when I first got in the business where, uh, you know, John and I both had to get our abacus out, There's tremendous softwares that do this for us. And now what I find is clients can actually participate in the financial planning process. And it's so visual, it actually excites the advisor and the client as we start kicking the can forward to reaching those financial goals.
1: Well, and and let me point out here, folks, that uh, Daniel Cairo was involved with Daniel Medina and I in putting together a couple of financial calculators that Daniel can talk about where they are available. I I want you to know that I have just uh, got through compliance my book, which is titled uh, Making Finance Make Sense, and it should be available on Amazon as of Friday. But uh, one of the things that held up getting the book completed was uh, my goal to say, let's. There are so many people who are trying to do this on their own. We we think you need guidance. It just makes you be more thorough. You're not missing anything. I think we think it's helpful to have someone with an eye, set of eyes, or like Dan Daniel Cairo says, you know, who help going to make you help you look at the options that you're. Undertaking to see all of the options and not be uh, left with blind spots that you haven't considered. But in, in the book, and as I say, Dan um, Medina will explain how you might be able to use this uh, these tools, we have a couple of calculators. And, and we did the math. Why? Because when we looked at other calculators that there have been a lot of application with, we find some, we can't tell if the math is correct, so that makes us nervous. And then some of them leave out, uh, uh, including Social Security, which makes us crazy because we think social security is a given and you need to look at when you're going to be eligible for it and then solve for the difference between what you see you're going to get thirty thousand dollars from social security but you need you're used to living on a hundred thousand dollars now we have to make up for the difference sometime in the future and then make sure that that difference shows up for the next 20 30 years while you have the satisfaction of being on this planet to see hopefully they'll never see another debate debacle again but it, so we did one on 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 retirement planning with calculator, and then another one on insurance planning. Now, that's a new one. I haven't seen that anywhere. But what we're saying, again, is you want to look to see what does it take to make work optional? How much money are you going to need behind door number one on your time frame so that if in 20 or 30 or 10 years, you can see there's, let's say, the equivalent of $2.6 million to get the difference between what you're getting from social security, probably little or no pension, and what you're used to uh, living on so that your lifestyle remains intact. And then what happens in the event, as we say, a breadwinner passes away again, has nothing to do with marital status. It has everything to do with who's dependent upon how much income for the other party. And if that party moves, uh, you know, goes to heaven, for example, even if it's a party that doesn't work, if it's someone who's providing uh, care for the children, particularly right now. Well, now you're gonna to have to come out of pocket and that might be $40,000 a year. So we want you to see today, if it is $40,000, it means you must have a million dollars of life insurance on that person today using the 4% rule, which means that we might get a six or 7% return annually, but limiting the withdrawal to 4%. And by the way, we increase the odds if we keep the withdrawal even less than that, that we, we find out. But that means, you know, that's the math. I present the death certificate. I receive a check for a million dollars. I put that to work. I get six, seven percent. I withdraw at four. That's $40,000. I might miss you, but I'm not going to miss your income. <laughs> that's what we're, we're, we're saying is so important. And 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 that gives peace of mind. And and let me just say this real quick, that we are now offering financial planning services at no cost to all frontline workers. You, These folks do so much to help keep us safe. We think uh, it's... our satisfaction to be able to say to you allow us to help you do what we can to keep your assets safe so that you're taking care of us this is what we can do to help you take care of yourself and and we'll be there every step of the way to make sure you're getting the results you're trying to achieve so daniel give us some guidance as to how folks might get their hands on the calculators to do run some numbers on their own please
2: we will actually put a link in our show notes, but you can find it at ybpoor.com forward slash calculators. And there's two calculators, a retirement calculator on the left-hand side and an insurance calculator on the right-hand side.
1: Beautiful. And, and, and point out, too, for those with assets, how, they can, how folks can check to see what kind of loss they can live with, please.
2: So for for the insurance calculator, I'm sorry, for, for that if we're talking about a, um, a risk-alized number. Yes. On the, on the homepage of our website, you'll see a risk tab. And that's a calculation that's uh, it's not it's not necessarily new to the industry, but it's a little unique. And the question is, how much loss are you able to sustain emotionally and still kind of keep going and not pull out of the market? And to the extent that you know that number, it helps outline how much risk you're willing to take. And it helps us design a portfolio, a portfolio that matches your risk tolerance.
1: And that's so important, folks. So, for example, we have one couple. Uh, they uh, they have a budget. By the way, wealthy people are happy to use that word. So the rest of us need to learn how to use that word. Embrace math, budgeting, and their budget when they go on vacation is two hundred thousand dollars. That's their budget, and and what they do is put the money in a in an account in uh, Europe. And then each of them are able to do what they want to do. They draw from that account alone. And as they watch the level of the account decline, uh, they start packing. <laughs> and they say, we're going to do this again next year. Hopefully, we can get on a plane next year. But it's 200000 But for them to live the way they prefer to live, what it means is in retirement, they need to have $200,000 a year. Well, it just so happens that uh, they sold two businesses. It totaled about $5 million using that 4% rule again as a guideline, 4% on 5 million is is 200,000. Now they know that they can live just the way they used to work to live. But here's their aha moment. If the account at $5 million drops 50% to $2.5 million, and they still need to spend at the rate of $200,000 a year, what has to happen to that yield? it must double so instead of being a four percent withdrawal rate it must become an eight percent withdrawal rate on 2.5 million dollars to get the same two hundred thousand dollars out every year now after that fifty percent loss and with an ongoing eight percent withdrawal or probably really anything north of four percent if they don't adjust that level downward, more in line with the level the, the balance currently, this money is is like an air, airplane coming out of the sky and it's not going to be a pretty landing. it's going to be pretty tough and I, it may or may not be on tarmac. so once you get to that level, now the question becomes that as I say their aha moment was we can't afford to see a fifty percent loss. so for those where that's not important, you, you throw the dice on the table, whatever happens is fine. It goes up, down, I don't really care. For those who need to keep their income at a certain level, that's when you begin to have to care to see how might we uh, win by losing less. How can we see we, we might be able to live with an 8% withdrawal as opposed to go through another 20 or 30 or 40% withdrawal. And if, I'm sorry, a decline. So that's what I'm trying to say, that, that kind of severe decline. And on top of the withdrawal, now the chances of getting that account back to its high watermark are pretty. It's probably between slim and not. So please feel free to uh, to take a look along. I'll, I'll around. <laughs> All right, folks. So we're delighted you could join us. And thanks again, Dan Cairo, for being on on the premises and helping us see where there are uh, opportunities in this world, no matter how crazy it might be. Uh, that's often times when opportunities uh, you want to take advantage of. I'm going to ask that you you know watch your space, wash your hands. And wear a mask, the three W's is what we're calling, so that we see you next week. If you have questions, please feel free to let us know what those questions are, because you're really driving the material we go through. So on behalf of Daniel Medina, I'm John Grace. We want to thank you for joining us here at Fiscal Fitness, and we'll see you at noon Pacific time next Wednesday.